reading is from Luke 4, 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, every single one of us knows failure pretty intimately. <laughs> you know, you've had that moment uh, where you tell yourself, I'm never going to do that again, right? It's a new year, new me. I've learned that lesson too many times. I'm not going to make the same mistake again. And then the situation arises, and what happens? You do it again. <laughs> Now, you know, in a room this size, I, I'm not going to be, I wouldn't be surprised if not all of us would agree as to what actions or behaviors would be considered wrong or destructive towards ourselves, towards others, and the broader uh, world in which we find ourselves. But here's what I do know is true. No matter where you are in your walk in life, every single person in here has a list of things you never want to do again. Everybody. I've got that list too, right? And, and when we, we, we have these conversations with ourselves, we say things like, you know what? I'm not going to overbook myself again next week. <laughs> you know what? Next week or next time, I'm not going to respond that way. I'm not going to take it personally that next time. Or, you know, I'm not going to lose my temper again. Or, I, I'm not going to go chasing fill-in-the-blank, you know, whether it's food, entertainment, drink, sex, fill-in-the-blank, whatever it might be to somehow comfort my soul. I'm not going to try to skirt around my phone's um, little uh, security guard to kind of get to certain websites. I'm not going to uh, be led by fear in my decision-making processes. Whatever it is, we've all got this, every single one of us has this list of certain things that we said and promised ourselves we're never going to do again. And then when the situation arises, we do it again. And maybe some time passes and we think we have victory and then we do it again and again. And listen, you, you have those battles and you lose in those battles over a long enough period of time, then it can start to feel like life. Life can be a losing battle. And when that begins to settle in, when that begins to just make its residence in your heart, when that thought pops up in your mind, there are usually three responses that come with that. Um, one, one of the first responses we tend to engage in is self-justification. Well, maybe it's not that bad. You know, now that I look back on it, in the grand scheme of things, I'm doing okay. So self-justification is one response. Another response that we can run towards is kind of this just overall apathy. Look, okay, it's just going to be a part of my life. I've, I've come to terms with it. A leopard can't change its spots. I can't change who I am. I am who I am. Or thirdly, 
and this is maybe the bottom of the barrel, as we just come to abhor ourselves and find ourselves in a space of despair. I'm a horrible person, and if anybody really knew who I was, they would realize how horrible I am too, and it's just the way it's going to be, so I might as well fake it till I make it because that's the only avenue I have to survive. And so we surrender, and battle feels hopeless against those things that we said we would never do again, and so like last year's royals, we just resign ourselves to losing. <laughs> Sorry, you know, it's a little painful. And every single person in here who, who's ever tried to change something significant in your life, something that irks your own soul, you know what this battle is like. And, and the reason I lay all that out is because what I'm about to say is going to sound ridiculous. If you know your own struggles in life and your own pain, this is going to sound absurd. And here it is. This is what we're going to learn this morning. You do not have to lose anymore. You do not have to lose anymore. Now, even as those words come out of my mouth, it feels a bit salesy, right? Like suddenly you're expecting, and if you tithe over the next four months, we'll throw in a selfie with Patrick Mahomes. Like, like, like you're expecting, so like this feels too good to be true, right? Like if that's possible, sign me up. But here's the deal. At the center of what Jesus has come to do, at the core of Christianity, is the message that freedom and victory are actually available. That we are not determined exclusively by our chemicals, by our past, by the structures of the world. Those have a part to play in what our battles look like, but they don't have to determine our future. And what Jesus has invited you and me into is an experience with him where change is actually possible. It's genuine and it's lasting. And this hope, it's anchored in one of the strangest and simultaneously one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. The story where Jesus goes to battle with the devil in some wilderness. And this story must have been pretty precious to Jesus because the only way we would know about it is if he told it to his disciples. Do you realize that? Like if he would have shared this story with them. And, and it's clear that he had because in Matthew, it's pretty detailed. Here in Luke, as he's gathering evidence, it's pretty detailed. In Mark, he gives us even a snippet of that. In all three of the, what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this explicit highlight of this temptation and battle with the devil. Now, John, in his gospel account, highlights more the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling of Jesus as that place of ultimate temptation. And I, and I have to ask myself, like, okay, if this was so sensitive to Jesus, I almost wonder when he began to tell this story. Was it, you know, when he's with his disciples on one of those long journeys and they're laying underneath the stars about to fall asleep. Judas is snoring really loud. Who's never anybody's favorite? Bless his heart. No, I don't know. Um, so, and, and then Jesus suddenly, like when everybody's about to fall asleep, Jesus just says, hey, have I told you about the time I went head to head with the devil in the wilderness? Like everybody, you know, everybody's eyes just kind of pops up and open. I mean, think about the extraordinary nature of this story. The son of God, Jesus, is tempted. But why? Like, why is this here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Why has Luke actually spent some significant time here on this story? What does Jesus want us to know? That he actually takes the time to tell his disciples, and then his disciples go on and tell others. Or maybe as we've been, become accustomed to now asking this new habit entering into 2020, what do we rediscover about Jesus here? He's not healing a blind man, so bringing some physical restoration. He's not, you know, providing food for the hungry. He's not dying on the cross in this particular episode. He's not rising from the dead. He has this battle with the devil in the middle of nowhere. Why? Why should we know this? Why is this integral to what it means to follow Jesus, to know him? 
Well, amidst quite a robust answer, one that is so one of the reasons that's so crucial as we seek to understand our own opportunity for change is that we need to know and then we, that we need to believe deeply that Jesus won so we don't have to lose anymore. Jesus wants us to know this. Jesus won so we don't have to lose anymore. Now, if you're anything like me, okay, if you're anything like me at all, my first thought when I think about my own struggles is I run to the how. Okay, so like if Jesus won so I don't have to lose anymore, how do I do this? Like how do I change, right? What's the philosophical framework, the psychological engagement, the key next steps to start improving myself? But listen, before we can ever jump to a how, in Christian change theory, it starts with a who. The who is the first move. The how is the second because the who determines, shapes, and informs the how and actually gives us the empowerment for the how. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this fascinating narrative that's extraordinarily unique to Jesus. Jesus has a unique temptation because of who he is and what he is accomplishing here. Yet at the same time, this is a story that's essential for all of us, okay? So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it should be on page 859, 859. And here's kind of our architecture for this morning. We're going to first look at some bad news. Great. Then we're going to look at some good news. And then lastly, we're going to look at a way that we can step forward into victory together. Okay? So Luke chapter 4. Four. If you jump up just a little bit earlier there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verse 23, we see that Jesus is roughly 30 years old, Luke lets us know. So he's in his first month on the job as Messiah, okay? So he's still in orientation mode. Um, even just a little bit earlier than that, we meet a guy by the name of John, who's often called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because he is calling all of Israel to repentance. They've lived in sin, and now it's a time to turn and to make things right with God. And so they're being baptized as a symbol of this repentance and preparation of the Messiah to come to bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. And John is approached by Jesus, and Jesus wants to be baptized. And John's like, no. And Jesus is like, yes, which is another sermon for another day. So John baptizes Jesus. And when he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit, which sometimes we can have this framework that the Holy Spirit is some impersonal force or power. The Holy Spirit is powerful, but he's very personal. And we see that, that, that actually the, the witness account here says that the Holy Spirit came down and fell upon Jesus bodily, the language is. Very personal. Not just a force. A bodily, something beautiful, like a dove would land on a human being. And then out of heaven comes the voice of God the Father declaring, You are my beloved Son. With you, or in you, I am well pleased. Quite an entry to his messianic role. This role to come and redeem and to bring God's kingdom to bear on the world. So what does Jesus do next? Does he sprint, you know, to the limelight? I mean, he's got all this affirmation coming around him. Does he go to center stage? No. This is really important. The Holy Spirit that fills Jesus, that dwelt upon him, now leads him into obscurity, into a wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus eats nothing. <laughs> to be clear, Jesus is still drinking water, and yes, you can go for that length of time actually without food and survive. And what's also so important to note is that sometimes we can think when the Holy Spirit's moving within us, he's going to lead us to a place of comfort and ease. Well, when the Spirit comes upon and fills Jesus, where does he lead him? But right into the thicket of temptation and into battle, and into battle with none other than the devil. And this is where we're going to land our first point, this bad news, okay? The bad news is this. As difficult as change is, 
the battle is worse than we imagine, okay? So this is the bad news. Um, when, when you think about some of the issues in life where you're struggling or fighting or especially that never going to do again list, what comes into your imagination? For most of us as 21st century Western modern people, we tend to think about ourselves, individuals, and this habit, this action, this thing, or another person that we're wrestling with. It's very individualistic. It's usually centered in me and my problem and maybe my problem with another person. That is extraordinarily Western and simplistic when it comes to the battle for our own change and our own transformation. And it's very myopic, very myopic. What we, and if we have that framework, here's usually our solutions that we think to change, right? If we can just get the right education, then I can change. If I can just, you know, recognize my past and understand family systems, which are important, then if I can just get that, then I can change. If I can just heal from a hurt, if that person is just, if they would stop being so difficult and on and on the list goes around me and my experiences exclusively, if I can just get around those things, then I can solve my deepest problems and I can become a better human being. And that's part of the story, but it's not the whole. And people across cultures and across history have had a much richer understanding of the battles that we as human beings are actually engaged in. You see, the battle isn't just against misunderstanding or immaturity or quote-unquote those people. Jesus wants us to see the reality in which we're actually battling when it comes to our own transformation and our own struggles. What Jesus makes abundantly clear and what the biblical narrative as a whole makes explicit is that we find ourselves in a broken world with destructive systems as selfish people at war with the devil, personified evil. Someone, this is, this is really important to remember, okay? In our own battles, in our own lives, there is someone who is intentionally targeting the goodness, beauty, and joy in your life to dismantle it. How often is that a part of our framework for battle and our own struggles? There's someone who comes to you, who knows your weaknesses, who knows the temptations that you wrestle with the most and is not only fighting against you, but is cheering against you and has been studying humanity for quite some time. Often knows you better than you know yourself. Learning from your mistakes, learning from your failures, keeping detailed notes on how he might slowly dismantle you and so get at his greatest foe, your creator, so that he might be able to mock him. Now, I know that, like, if you're anything like me, that just sounds like a sci-fi novel or some weird horror film, but Jesus wants to make this explicit. This is why he's telling his disciples, this is why it's captured here in this narrative, is to not only understand what Jesus has done, but what the battle is indeed that we're fighting, that there is someone who's seeking to dismantle everything good that we have been created to engage, enjoy, and to do. And frankly... It kind of makes sense of life, doesn't it? When you begin to think of some experiences in life, if you're honest with yourself and you, you begin to dismantle your Western modern framework for reality and begin to question if there might be something more than we've been informed in a scientific framework that has this iron ceiling to anything that's quote unquote supernatural, excluding just only that, a supernatural that's not just natural, right? But has supernatural realities if we begin to expand our horizon, then when you see and hear about things in the news and you're reading articles in the newspaper about mass shootings or terrorist attacks or untold acts of bigotry or racial injustice, and, and you feel like when you're watching or you're reading and it just feels bigger than human evil, 
And more than just psychological groupthink, when these you know, people are coming together, it takes on a life of its own. Bigger than even just that, something supernaturally broken is carrying forth this indestructible, like injustice. Like, and you feel, it's like, oh, it just feels extraordinarily evil. It's a crack in how we're often told to perceive reality. That maybe, just maybe, there is someone in a series of someones that's seeking to dismantle everything good in God's creation. But not just in broader world do we see this, but we see this in our own lives personally, right? How many times have you had that moment where suddenly you're like, whoa, where did that word come from? Like, I was saying things that I almost felt like I was losing control. Or even when you're going throughout your day and then suddenly you're like, man, I feel really heavy. Have you ever had those moments? Or it's almost like there's something bigger than you that's coming at you. The battle is worse than we imagine. Now, that doesn't take us off the hook, okay? Our decisions are still our decisions, and we're responsible for the decisions that we make in our lives. But we do need to understand the breadth and the depth and the height of this battle and how all-encompassing it is. And who's actually engaged in it? Because here's the deal. If we underestimate the battle, we'll never know victory. And it's going to cost us way more than we're ready to give. For example, the, 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 the um, exhibit that's around us, entitled Civil, around the Civil War and its complexities and the conversations around what caused it and, it, and the brilliant work that Don Waters Baker has engaged. You know, an fa interesting fact around the Civil War the very first battle of the Civil War, some of you may know this, the very first battle, there was a large group that came out to watch. A large group came out to watch the very first battle because they thought, oh, once the South sees the weaponry of the North, they're going to surrender. It's going to be a short go of things. So we're going to come out and we're going to watch this basically as a spectacle. But 620,000 620, lives later, over the course of four years, finally, this war came to a grinding halt. They had underestimated the battle in which they were waging. And it cost them way more than they were willing to give, way more than they ever expected to give. The battle, friends, is way worse than we imagined. So let's re-engage our text here. We see that Jesus, he enters this wilderness. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And I love this because the text says, and he was hungry, which feels like, frankly, to me anyway, one of the greatest understatements of Scripture ever. Um, like my kids say they're starving when they haven't had a snack. Um, <laughs> Jesus goes 40 days and he's hungry, right? Showing us the brilliant humanity of our Lord and Savior. And it's right here. How does the devil attack when Jesus is at his weakest physically? Look with me, chapter 4, verse 3. He starts off his very first words, If you are the Son of God. So remember, in the context, Jesus has just heard the affirmation from heaven that he is indeed the Son of God. He has been told from heaven. He's experienced the fullness of the Spirit. So experientially, also affirmation from on high. And where does Satan go? He goes right at his identity, his security in who he is and whose he is. While bread, quote-unquote, is the first temptation... It's not about bread. It's just the surface, which is a good reminder that in every temptation, don't be fooled that the act itself is the ultimate temptation. There's always something deep within our hearts wrapped around our identity that the devil is going after. So if you just solve the surface, you will consistently fail. But here, the devil says, hey, Jesus, you know, I know you think you're the son of God, but why don't you prove it? Prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. You know, it's not going to hurt anybody. Just make yourself a little bread. Aren't you hungry? Come on. What a good reminder that the harm principle isn't the only principle by which we live. 
Sometimes we can think, well, what I'm doing isn't hurting anybody. Does that make it right? Clearly not here. If Jesus would have made bread, would it have hurt anybody? No. It actually made his life a little better. A physical relief and momentary gratification, but it would have completely missed God's will for his life. And we're going to see why that's the case as we continue on. Now, one thing that's really important to note here in the text is that the Son of God, this title, is one of the most important titles for Jesus in all of Scripture. What's also really important to note is that it's not exclusively used of Jesus, okay? When the Son of God is used across the Hebrew Scriptures, it usually carries three meanings. It's a unique commissioning to carry out a God-ordained work. That's one. Another is a unique intimacy with God or even a likeness to God, all right? Now, if you're looking even here in Luke, we find that the first son of God, if you jump right up to chapter 3, verse 38, is a gentleman by the name of Adam. Luke is pointing us all the way back to the beginning of the biblical narrative. The very first human being called a son of God because Adam was not born out of progeneration, but rather by the very framework of God and the breath of God. And early on, there's important parallels here to Jesus, this son of God. Adam, early in his career, is called to steward God's good creation. But he comes face to face with the devil. He and Eve, they fail notoriously by what? Eating something. An apple. Or whatever. A fruit. Historically, people have imaged it as an apple. A fruit. And when they partook of something that was pleasing to the eyes, it was going to make them wise. And it was going to make them like God, when they partook and they ate, it had nothing to do with the fruit. It had everything to do with their own insecurity in the same way that we see here, the devil tempting Jesus. They ate and it felt so harmless. But destruction and pain now littered the world and brokenness broke in. That's the first son of God. Now, another interesting son of God throughout the Hebrew scriptures is the nation of Israel. They are called this in the book of Exodus, a son of of God. And when we see that Jesus is drawn into the wilderness and he's done so for 40 days, it's meant to now bring us back to the broader story of the nation of Israel who went into the wilderness and for 40 years wandered. They were supposed to undo in many ways what the first son of God had undone. So the first son of God, Adam, brought curse into the world. Now Israel was meant to be an usher and a vessel for God's blessing throughout the world. This was the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis. But what we look and see across all the Hebrew scriptures is that Israel fails again and again and again and again. You see, what Luke is doing is he's reminding us that throughout all of history, Ever since human beings have been around, human beings have failed. Those who have been given this amazing commission to God's ordained work who were to be like God and actually have this intimacy with him in that journey have failed. And so when we come to this son of God, all of history has been ratcheting up to this one moment. Will this Jesus, this son of God, be like all the other sons of God before? Or is there something categorically unique and different? Will he win and be the most outstanding human being of all of history? Well, what we see is that unlike Adam, unlike Israel... Jesus doesn't give in. And instead, when the devil tempts him to turn a stone into bread, what does he do? He quotes scripture, right? We see this in verse 4. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He's taking scripture and he's holding it in the battles and the war against the evil one. And when you actually look at the whole of that passage, it, Jesus is saying, listen, man doesn't live and not just exist. I mean, the life we long to live 
We don't actually flourish by just fulfilling every single physical desire that pops up. Where we find our flourishing and our sustenance is by embracing, consuming, and living into the very word of God. That's where life is. And that's what he holds on to. And so the score at first is one to nothing. It's a nail biter. So we keep going. Now the devil, he takes a different tactic. He takes Jesus to a high place. And this is pretty extraordinary. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And the evil one says, hey, 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 you know what, Jesus? All this has been entrusted to me. Every kingdom, every domain. Why don't you have it? This is why you came, right? You're come to take back the world, to win it back from me, which is under my bondage. You can have it all. You can finally end poverty. You can finally make all wrongs right. It can all be yours. All you got to do is just bow. Three seconds. Three seconds. Instant gratification. Why drag this out? Like, why, why go through all this, you know, these next few years? Why go through a painful cross? Why go through all of that? Why have all your people go through all of that? You can have it all now. Millennia of work in a moment. And yet Christ, he knew all too well that when Scripture was on the tongue of a snake, he knows that that's a place. Every shortcut that the serpent provides, every shortcut that the devil points to really ultimately leads to a dead end. And so he quotes back to him, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. God is the only one who's worthy of worship. Chasing after God's ends but using the devil's means will only lead to death. So we've got the score of two to nothing. It's a pretty good score so far. You know, now we've got a a little lead as to things are going. Now uh, the, the devil, he changes his tactic once more. And now he actually takes... Jesus' weapon and begins to use it against him. He grabs Scripture. The devil knows Scripture really, really well, which is really important to note that just because you know Scripture doesn't mean you're equipped to battle temptation. You see, when the devil picks up Scripture, he twists it, he distorts it, he ignores whole sections, and he uses it for his ends. Knowledge is not your ultimate weapon against temptation. Intimacy with God is. And so Jesus, hearing, you know, the, the, the devil takes Jesus and he brings him to Jerusalem and he says, why don't you just throw yourself off the temple and watch it? I bet you all these angels, right? It says in the scriptures that he will command his angels concerning to guard you and they'll catch you. And you're, you're you know, you're not even going to scrape your foot up. It says it in the scriptures, Jesus. Why don't you try it out? But Jesus knows all too well that God is not someone we test. He's someone we serve unreservedly. And so he quotes scripture back and he says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And it's a shutout. Three to nothing. Oh, that the chiefs would be that great. (laughs) Some of us have skeptics, you know, in the work of God. Um, And what we see here in the text in verse 13 is that after the devil had tempted him in every temptation, he departed from him. Every temptation, any temptation that we can imagine, verse, chapter 4, verse 13, he departs from him. And for the first time in all of human history, someone, a son of God, is truly unique and has victory. No one else in all of history, after generation, after generation, after generation of coming face to face with the devil, losing, bringing more destruction rather than life, we finally have someone who's totally unique, unlike all the others who come before him, who knows victory. And nothing can seem to stop him. But why? I don't know about you, but I I started reading this and I started... Why go through all the battle? 
Like, why do this fight? Why, why does he go through and give us this temptation narrative? Why does he give us this story here of his engagement with the evil one? And then come through and go through writhing pain in the midst of temptation and giving up food and going against the grain. Why do all of that? And not just there. Why does he go through the garden of Gethsemane and instead of allowing the cup to pass from him, but instead he drinks deeply of God's wrath when he goes to the cross. And why, why do that? And not only that, but why is he on the cross writhing in pain when he has all the authority to call all the angels of heaven to come down and end it immediately? Why not? Because of you and me. Because of you and me. Have you ever asked yourself, like, what's so wrong with a little bit of bread? What's so terrible about Jesus having the kingdom right then and there? It seems like a pretty good deal. All the kingdoms of the earth. What's so wrong with a little jumping off of the temple and letting the angels do what the angels do, you know? You see, the evil one, the devil, he wanted Jesus to have a, a crown without a cross. Every single bit of this is inviting Jesus to leverage his power for his own comfort, his own ease, and completely rejecting his messianic calling to not just come and usher in a kingdom. Because listen, Jesus knew he could have his kingdom on earth immediately. And he could bring his reign of justice in a moment. But listen, a king with a crown that does not engage the cross means he can only have a kingdom without us. God in his perfect justice must punish evil. He's too good to turn a blind eye to injustice and treachery. And every human being, every single person has committed treason against our creator God when we've turned our back and sought to do our own thing. And Jesus knew that if he were to establish the kingdom, if he were to take the devil's offer in that moment, he could never invite us to live with him in that kingdom. He knew that he needed to go to the cross, the very calling, which is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come to a climax at the cross because he needed to take our place, die our death, pay our penalty for our sin so that when his kingdom is ushered in, he has purchased our ability to enter into it. This is central to his calling. And the devil knew what he was doing. A world without the cross is a world without us. And Jesus was unwilling to even bring his kingdom if we couldn't be a part of it. What an amazing, amazing son of God. It wasn't, he wasn't just ignoring it because that was the only way to get the kingdom. No, he could have had it, but he couldn't have us because he's too just. And he went to the cross not only because he's just, but because he's that merciful and kind and gracious. And he saw us in our oppression, the oppression of our own making, the oppression of others, the oppression of the evil one, and he was unwilling to surrender us for his own comfort. He chose not to give in for us. And not just for us someday. This is where we land on the good news, like this really rich news. The, the bad news is that the battle is worse than we imagine. The good news is that Jesus' victory is better than we live. You know, when we hear this about Jesus' victory, what we can instantly jump to is that the idea, okay, Jesus went through all of this, not just the temptation, but the temptations throughout his ministry that we climaxed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the cross. He went through all of that, that he might purchase my forgiveness, that I might know eternal life with him, that when he returns, I will know eternity with him. That's great for then. But what about now? What about the battles we face today? 
That never do again list that's always in the back of our mind. Does that mean we just have to keep falling on grace because the battle's worse than we imagine and we're just basically helpless and so we're just holding on to our ticket to heaven and that's the only... No, there's something so much richer going on here that Jesus has invited us into. And I never want to downplay that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, this grace is unlimited and we will not know perfection until he returns. But the same spirit that empowered Jesus to battle sin is the spirit that we have been given when we follow him. This is why the apostle Paul says, if we live in the spirit, let us walk by the spirit. We've been given untold power when God came to reside in us because of the finished work of Jesus. And so we can fight temptation too. Now, does that mean because the Spirit is in us, we should just be able to let go and let God? No, you will never find that on any page in Scripture. It doesn't come off the mouth of Jesus. It doesn't come off the mouth of any of the apostles or any of the New Testament writings. Now, what is explicit is that the gospel is opposed to earning. We can never make God love us more, but it's not opposed to effort. Empowered by the Spirit, we still walk forward. So how? <laughs> now we can finally get to how. Once we've spent a lot of time on the who, now we can get to how. How can we better live into Jesus' victory for us? It has everything to do with training. You know, it, if you are a boxer and you step into the ring and you just get obliterated by your opponent, right? And then a journalist comes up to you afterwards like, so, so what's your plan? You know, that's, I don't know. So what's your plan uh, to, to uh, for the next time you fight, the, you know, your opponent? Your, your game plan can't be, I'm just going to punch harder. Uh, it didn't work. Um, why do you think the same task, tactics are going to work next time? No, what you say is, Okay, I have to change my training regimen. There was something about how I was preparing for that battle that made me ill-equipped. And so often we can step into the arena of fighting temptation and our personal battles as we seek to know and be known by Jesus and to walk in intimacy with him and greater wholeness as if we just got to try harder. And maybe the Spirit will show up. That's not the testament we see across Scripture. Instead, it's an invitation to train better. And frankly, one of the best ways to train is to not just listen to the precepts of Jesus, but to look at his practices. Someone who has shown us what it means to be fully human, who is fully God and fully human, shows us what it means to live into our humanity to the full. So we can't just listen to what he's taught, go to the story first, and watch what he's doing. Look at his practices to inform even our own lives. And so we could start picking some things off. You could talk about solitude here at the beginning, that when you engage in solitude like Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry, it's an opportunity for your soul to be laid bare, to be honest about those insecurities in which you're facing and allow God to do his work in those places of solitudes that you might hear his voice and be able to even combat those temptations that are coming. Solitude is a great place for that. We could talk about solitude. We could talk about the scriptures which are clearly on display here. Jesus doesn't come up with really clever arguments against the devil. He quotes God's word. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, it's the sword of the Spirit, right? This amazing weapon, not against people, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. And so internalizing, and clearly Jesus not only studied intently, but probably memorized the whole of the Old Testament as many people did in the first century, meditated on regularly such that it shaped the way he saw the world and even the ways in which he heard from his father. So we could talk about scripture. But one thing that frankly I had overlooked way too many times is what Jesus does with his body. And I don't mean like an exercise regimen, okay? It's not like Jesus. <laughs> it's not like Jesus like CrossFit. Um, that's important. Exercising your body has important qualities as you seek to take care and steward the gift that God has given you. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I've noticed here is how Jesus fasts. 
as he steps into one of the greatest battles of his ministry. For 40 days, he fasts. Once again, that's not going without water, but going without food. And fasting for God's people has been a space where you have rejected certain necessities for a period of time to center all your affections, your attention, your senses upon God. It's a space where, you know, I was even talking with my wife about this last night, Allie, and I was like, yeah, I was kind of processing the sermon. And she's so wise. She goes, yeah, and think about this. Like, even in our culture where we have fast food, back then, all the time it took to both go get the food from the market, the preparation of the food, all of that time is now reserved and centered in on focusing solely God's presence and engaging all of those faculties and what God's doing. Richard Foster, in his brilliant book, if you've never read it, Celebration of Discipline, writes that fasting must forever center on God. Must forever center on God. It's not a place of manipulating God, like, God, I'm not going to eat until you show up. No, it's a place of dedicating time. You see that even with Jesus. The ultimate fight against temptation isn't denial, it's dedication. He's dedicated to his Father such that no one can turn his attention away. It's not a hunger strike that we often see in political formation that I'm not going to eat until you finally give in to my demands. No, that's not the way God works. Instead, fasting is a place of training. And there's really two ways I, I just want to highlight this that are really helpful for us. Is one, tr- well, Here's what fasting does and how it trains us. When you fast from food for any length of time, what you do is you say no to the desires of your body. So if you go without food for a meal and then you suddenly realize that you can survive by saying no to your desires and live to fight another day, what you've done is just reminded yourself that even a necessity that you gave up, a desire that you gave up for a moment, you can live through that. You don't always have to say yes to every urge within your body. If you can say no to food and survive, then maybe, just maybe, you're training your body. We are not just isolated minds or these spiritual beings trapped in our... We are embodied beings and we need this in messages to our body. And the Spirit of God works through fasting to show us, to train us, that we can say no to temptation and survive. That's really important. So it's an area of training. And then secondly, if we learn anything from Jesus here in his fasting is that we see that fasting can become a great place to fight for others. He enters fasting not exclusively for himself, not for navel-gazing, not for an opportunity to make much of himself even, but to fight for us, which of course makes much of him. He goes through the temptation, says no to some of the easiest and frankly isolated from Jesus' vocational calling. Many of those things wouldn't be terrible. But he says no to them. Why? For us because he's on, on his way to the cross. And the same should be true for us. That fasting becomes an opportunity not just to train ourselves, to remind ourselves by the power of the Spirit working through the disciplines like fasting to show us that we don't have to listen to every urge in our body if we are to even know joy in God's presence. But then secondly, it can become an avenue to actually fight for others. And so in the uniqueness of this weekend, both Sanctity of Life Sunday as well as Martin Luther King Jr. weekend we as a church are going to engage across five campuses or invite people from all five campuses to engage in a day of fasting. So it's something I don't know if we've ever done before as a church across all of our campuses. Um, But this is really important. This is a great avenue to discipline to begin to train in the victory of Jesus. You see, fasting has been so crucial for God's people for so long, and so often we just ignore it. No longer. Not here. And so, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be 
on Wednesday, January 22nd, inviting everybody to fast unto God for others. Okay, fast unto God. So you're still zeroing in on God and his purposes, but we're doing it for others, for others. And now I want you to kind of pick up, there's a little bookmark that's there in each of your seats. I want to invite you um, to kind of pick that up, and we're going to walk through this quickly. Um, so as you see there, some of you are like, what's this all about? This is a template or a guide for you on, that, on this Wednesday, all right? On Wednesday, January 22nd, pick a meal. It could, be, um, it could be lunch at work. It could be breakfast. The point isn't to skip food, so don't just work through lunch. That's not the point, okay? Some of you already do that. Um, no, the idea is to zero in and focus on God. And then in the midst of that hunger, sit and reflect on your hunger. When you work through lunch, you're focused on your work, so you ignore the hunger pains. Sit in the hunger so that you can actually learn the lesson that when you hunger and you say no by the power of the Spirit, you can say no to other things. And you begin to train in saying no to temptation. <clears throat> Secondly, may that hunger, may that part of your prayer be, may I hunger for justice in the same way I hunger for this meal. In the same way that Jesus hungered for justice and mercy for the world. And then on the back here, you have a brilliant passage out of Isaiah 58, which guides us in the kind of fasting that God himself declares he longs for. You can meditate on that text. And then even there are questions to be praying through, avenues to kind of guide us as we seek to pray for others. You're going to need at least 15 minutes. So make a plan, tell it to somebody so that they can keep you accountable. This is a great way. If you're tired, if you're tired of losing, don't miss the amazing resource that fasting is and how the Spirit of God works through fasting to form us. Because listen, you don't have to lose anymore. Not that we're going to be perfect, but we can know victory. And Jesus' victory is often better than we live, and it doesn't have to be. So will you join us? as we seek to join Jesus, not just in what he said, but in how he lived. And so know the life and life abundant he's longed to give us. Amen? So at this time, we're going to turn to a meal.